Let me pray. Loving God, we do thank you for the richness of your word revealed that opens up for us world that is beyond our learning and understanding. But what we glimpse is life-giving. It is hope-filled. Help us today to hear familiar words in a way which is fresh, ways in which we can water deep roots and so our faith and our trust in you would be strengthened. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Now, hang on a minute. Don't you love it when it goes into an update halfway through a service? <laughs> it's what I just did. Okay. One of the challenges we face as Christian believers is to explain our faith, which is so rich and so deep and so extensive, in clear, meaningful words for those who come from outside the church and don't have a lot of that assumed knowledge that we use. Imagine someone was to come to you and said, could you just explain to me, just in a sentence, what it is that you believe? So many cars now drive past churches and people walk past churches with little understanding of who or what goes on inside the churches. They don't know what it is that make Christians tick, what it is about their faith that um, we dedicate our time and our whole lives to as well. So imagine how would you answer if someone says, just give me one sentence to tell me what's, what's the big message of the Bible? If we were to be a, a politician these days, one in particular who's particularly fond of saying, can you reduce it to just three words? What might those three words be? Well, notwithstanding a particular politician who loves his three words, uh, short bites of significant policy, there are three words, in fact you can even reduce it to two, that gets to the heart of what it is our message and I increasingly find it's a really helpful way to, to start that conversation. The words are grace and peace. They are so familiar to us, they just uh, roll up our tongue so naturally. But grace and peace actually summarises the fullness of God's mission in this world and the God's desired outcomes of both salvation and of the new creation as well. Grace and peace. So we've been, um, since the beginning of February, exploring God's mission plan as it's revealed not just in Scripture, but by observing God in action. As we observe God in action, we understand more about the character of God and what God's purposes are about. And... Uh, we're sort of heading into a stage two or part two of our series. It's going to take us another couple of months. Up till now, we've been mainly focusing in the Old Testament, especially in, uh, in Genesis, and because of the, uh, the richness of the word shalom, which we've been using as our summary, that's quite natural. But you might think, well, where does that go in the New Testament? We, uh, where does this theme of, of uh, shalom, of shalom in the sanctuary of God, does that just drop out of view in the New Testament? But once we begin to look more intentionally at the New Testament, we actually see it's everywhere. 
it's actually not just around the periphery, it is, it's a front and centre in the New Testament message as well. Paul starts his letters time and again with the phrase, grace and peace. And it isn't just Paul, the writer of uh, 1 Peter, and others use the phrase as well. I heard that one coming out of my mouth before I was <laughs> able to stop it. I'm glad you can laugh with me. A very quick recap of the last couple of months of where we've gone. We've recognised the realities of life are complicated. <coughs> and uh, the, from the very second verse of the Bible, it names that reality that there is a darkness that hovers over the deep. God's creation was into that darkness and breaking over it. The darkness in uh, the first chapter, first, second verse of it, isn't explained. It's an evocative image. It doesn't say where it's come from or exactly what it looks like. But it's foreboding. It, it's, uh, it's threatening. It is discomforting. And that darkness names a reality that is part of our life and our life experience, and it continues to be so, although less so. Into that, the big game changer that sets the narrative for the rest of Scripture, God created the heavens and earth, Genesis 1.1, runs right through to the end of, Genesis, of uh, Revelation 22. So too, the phrase, and the Spirit of God, the word spirit, ruach, means the breath of God, the wind of God moved into that darkness and began to dispel it. The light began to overwhelm the darkness. Order was, it was, uh, began to shape the chaos. And salvation, of uh, hope, begins to emerge from that moment on. The Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters and continues to do so. Shalom, then, is a Hebrew word that has no single English word that does anything like justice to it. It's usually translated peace, and that is one aspect of it, but it's uh, so much more than that. It means, the Hebrew word means fullness and flourishing of God's creation, of wellness, wholeness, prosperity, peace, to be restored, to be replenished, a world where all is right and in harmonious rest. And we use that quote from uh, Cornelius Plantinga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Plantinga describes it. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and saviour opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. It's experiencing the blessings that are uh, it, built into the fabric of creation, creation being an ongoing project. Now, of course, that we begin to struggle. Why isn't the world like that? And the explanation comes in terms of the rebellion, the desire that we don't need God for all this. We can try and achieve it for ourselves. 
and the desire that we would be the ones which are at the centre of this world and trying to create these things and the need for redemption into that space. That's where we've come from. We've spoken a lot about shalom and peace, so I want to focus both today and for our coming weeks in the word grace, which is related to it. And we're going to do it through the lens of Ephesians. Um, it, you see it right across the New Testament, but it is particularly rich in how it's expressed in Ephesians. Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those verses we tend to move on from, but actually I want us to sit with that verse and those phrases. Grace and peace to you. Who from? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to refer to a book that I actually discovered last night when I got my notes out um, and got the book out as well, that I actually had mentioned it to Sir Matthews and waved it around back in 2008, just before we departed. So uh, I'll just remind you, it's a wonderful book and uh, by a, um, a Croatian theologian called Miroslav Vol, and I'll come back to him a little bit later. But the book is called Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. I love that title. What do we mean by grace? It's free of charge. No strings attached. Nothing that we could offer or earn or deserve or uh, work with God. Giving and forgiving in a culture that is stripped of grace, that is forgotten about how important giving and forgiving is. So this is uh, Miroslav's little summary of what the book is about. It's about worshipping the true God and letting the true God act in us. He describes two false views of God, false understandings of God, that are not only misplaced, they are actually dangerous. The first false view of God that he says that the modern world seems to, to, to assume is a God who's, who's up for negotiation, God the negotiator. And so we can do a deal with God. We can bring something to God and saying, look, I have this to offer you. What could we offer God that God doesn't already have? Let him know that God needs. There is nothing we can bring to the, the table by way of negotiating with God. It's all one way. We receive. There's nothing that we can give to earn or to uh, negotiate that. The other false view of God that he describes is the, the, um, the grandfather Santa Claus sort of God up in the sky, that when we really, really, really want something, then we plead with God as though our pleading and beseeching would in some way gain God's favour and we get whatever it is that we request, whether it's to be uh, um, from the most trivial, like a parking spot on one hand, <laughs> and I'm sure we all occasionally slip into that, um, or whether it's the more dramatic, you know, to be saved out of a situation, out of a crisis, and we reach out. And he says, that's not God. God is not there, so someone that we have to sort of uh, persuade or plea to, to give us the goodings. That's his God's job, to give us what is good and, and everything else. He said those are both false views of God. So going back to letting the true God act in us, the book tells, uh, tells us as plainly as possible that the true God is a God who cannot stop giving and forgiving. 
That is in God's DNA, God's character. And that our knowledge of this true God is utterly bound up with our willingness to receive from the hand of God the liberty to give and forgive ourselves. One really clear way of that being expressed is in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. If we're not going to forgive the sins of others, then we are putting a blockage up in terms of our receiving that forgiveness from God. He actually describes elsewhere that we as, a, as humans are at our best. The best side of us emerges when we are givers and forgivers. We see it sometimes when there's a crisis, bushfire or flood or uh, coronavirus or whatever it may be. We are at our best when we are looking out for others and saying, what can we do to help? How can we assist you in some way? That brings out some good parts of our character. We are not as good when it comes to forgiving and the way in which we retain grievances and wrongdoing in others that cripples not only um, relationships, but it actually cripples us as well. To learn again the, the, the liberty God has given to us, to be able to give and to be able to forgive, to let go, to release, takes us in a different space altogether. And he says our culture has forgotten how to do that, how to, to give and to forgive. So back to Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the rest of Ephesians unpacks, well, what do you mean by every spiritual blessing? And you almost imagine Paul saying, wait, there's more. In fact, there's more in this verse because the verse runs from this verse to the end of verse 14. It's a seriously long sentence. That goes on and on and on and on. It's the one I hold on to whenever it's pointed out to me by my gracious editor, Fiona, um, that I've written a very, very long sentence and perhaps I should break it up. And I say, but Paul, he's got this long sentence. Yeah, but I'm not Paul. Um, it's a, it's, it's, Paul's just flowing. He just can't find enough words to describe what it is to have every spiritual blessing in Christ. But his summary of that is grace and peace. So that's what's going to preoccupy us, I hope, very happily for the next couple of months. Every spiritual blessing in Christ takes us to the mission of God that we have been exploring. And especially our lens for this now is going to be Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So let's look at this uh, long sentence. The translators can't cope with a long sentence. They break it up and they're quite right, so actually um, I've taken the translator's view of it. I've highlighted some parts, but I'm not going to comment it overly, but in this long sentence, Paul repeatedly, I think it's about nine or ten times, uses the phrase either in him or in Christ or through him. That's all referring to the central work of Jesus as the way in which this grace and peace has been delivered. It's just woven in and out of this long verse. For God chose us. He chose us in him, in Christ, 
before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us, what for? For adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And so it continues on. It's just so rich. But the rest of Ephesians unpack it, so I'm not going to try and go through it all here and now. As the verse continues, verses 7 and 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Let's just stay for a moment with that, what it means to have the forgiveness of sins, that we can receive that. Miroslav Wolf in his book describes it in this way. The difference between justice and forgiveness, this is how he describes the difference. To be just is to condemn the fault and because of the fault to condemn the doer as well. That's how our legal system works, the court systems. It is if there's fault to be named and to be found, it is, uh, that is what is ex- explored and examined. And if fault has been found, then those who have contributed or been the cause of that fault are called to account. That is justice. And God actually needs to do that. It's not an option to say, oh, that doesn't really matter. It's just forget all that. That would be anarchy. So we need that. But what is the difference between that and forgiveness? To forgive is to condemn the fault, but to spare the doer. That's what the forgiving God does. Is that easy? Or Miroslav Wolf's own experience, we're growing up in Croatia through the, uh, the wars of the former Yugoslavia. He saw a lot of atrocities and a lot of things that had to be named as wrongdoing. He's got a, a significant book, it's a, a prize-winning book called Exclusion and Embrace. He says that the wrongdoing has to be named before the embrace can actually happen. That's another book for another time. But he touches on that, the richness of forgiveness that goes beyond the justice as well. Two are brought together. So... Grace is something in which we receive with open hands and open palms. And I love that gesture in some ways where we just, we need to soak it up and to receive it because we know that we have nothing to offer in that space and certainly when it comes to seeking the forgiveness of God. A friend of mine is a, a former dentist called Keith Chidsey. Um, he had a quirky sense of humour as a dentist, as a member of our former parish, and um, uh, he had to actually give up dentistry because he had RS, uh, RSI in his, in his hands and wasn't able to do it, so he took up art, as he does. He's a seriously able guy. Um, he has recently been invited to submit a work for... Um, actually, before I get to Keith's one to staying with the open hands. Faith is the way we as receivers relate appropriately to God as the giver. It is with empty hands held open for God to fill. We can only receive it. Faith is that gesture of receiving that. 
So this is the piece of art that uh, Keith submitted to the, uh, the Blake Prize. Um, so it's a, a sculpture, and uh, Keith in particular does a lot of um, woodwork and crafting very large pieces. He's not limited to this, um, and he's uh, exhibited now in a whole range of ways. This one really uh, moved me when I saw it on uh, Keith's Facebook page. So this is just very recent work. It's actually two hands. You see one hand is actually crafted in copper, reaching out of, uh, out of the waters, grasping for help. You know, it's the I'm drowning, help me uh, hand reaching out. And above it, and it's a bit hard to see from a distance, but you can come and take a look at it later on, the carved hand is reaching down from above and grabbing that hand and holding it firm. I've got you. It's the hand of God reaching down into it. And it's a lovely image of what it is in God's grace to reach into that desperate plea and to feel the, the, the sureness of that grip and that hand. So, a final quote from Miroslav Wolf. Faith is an expression... I'll just run it. It's a bit distracting to do all that. Faith is an expression of the fact that we exist so that the infinite God is not distant, he's not out there, not disinterested from us and holding himself and saying, I have nothing to do with you. No, the infinite God can dwell in us and work through us for the well-being of the whole creation. Can you see how now we've done a full circle back to our theme of shalom? God who gives shalom calls us to be shalom makers, to be peacemakers, to be culture makers. We become instruments of that shalom in God's purposes, as God's intended. If faith denies anything, it denies that we are tiny, self-obsessed specks of matter. <laughs> That's a way of describing the fairly bleak view of what life is about, but it says that no, life is actually we're nothing. <laughs> Um, and nothing that you know, and even the uh, the view that we are just mere uh, material beings that are made up of specks of matter. Uh, it denies that we are tiny, self-obsessed specks of matter who are reaching for the stars but remain hopelessly nailed to the earth, stuck in our own self-absorption. That's basically one phrase that describes modernist culture. We are so tied to self-absorption that it's all about me and I this and I that and everything else. And that just nails us down. I love this last sentence. Faith is the first part of the bridge from self-centeredness to generosity. That is what grace and peace is about. I'm going to show a, um, a piece of music by a, a Scottish group. It's called I Stand Amazed. And that's just a way of, for us to reflect on the richness of God's grace and peace and how we can um, just begin to allow it to wash over us and to enfold us. And it's an upbeat piece. I wanted to have something that was positive in it and uh, affirming about the richness of it as well. Enjoy this. And, Jamie, you'll play with it. Audio. Oh, yeah. 